A couple of years ago, when the pandemic disrupted travel and stopped face-to-face investor meetings in their tracks, I spent a lot of time talking with biotech execs about creative approaches to raising money. They virtualized their pitch decks and shook hands over Zoom and commonly raised tens and hundreds of millions of dollars from their home offices and dining room tables. It required an adjustment, but generally the money then was readily available. Fast forward two years and airplanes are once again a primary deal-making vehicle, but the deals themselves are considerably harder to find. Money's no longer cheap, capital markets are restricted, and investors are exercising a high degree of discernment over who and what they're backing. This new scene demands a different kind of creative effort, namely finding new stones to turn over. James Thomas Coates and his colleagues at Decisive Point, the venture capital group where he's a principal, are carving out a niche doing just that, helping biotech founders access capital from unlikely, and in some cases, virtually unknown sources. Shortly after earning his PhD in radiation oncology and biology with a focus on drug discovery from the University of Oxford and uh, a fellowship at Harvard Medical School, James jumped into the private equity game, first with Bain Capital and now with Decisive Point. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of The Business of Biotech, James and I are going to dig into some creative approaches to raising money in a bearish biotech market. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. Um, so I hope I got the, you know, in that preamble, I hope I got the, the the background right. I mean, it's it's interesting to me on paper when I look at your, uh, your background, it's like I, I see a guy, I look at your education, and I'm like, I see a guy who uh, had a pretty promising and sure thing uh, future in, in academia and perhaps even industry. Uh, as I said, Oxford PhD, Harvard Fellowship. Uh, you even served a, 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 as assistant dean at Oxford for a time, which is is, is pretty cool. Um, but in pretty short order, you uh, you wound up in, in private equity at Bain. So tell us a little bit about that. How, how'd that kind of come to pass? Yeah, happy to. So ever since grade school in Canada, really, I, I intended to become a professor, I think. I didn't know if that would be biological or physical sciences. Um, but by the time I finished my studies at McGill and made my way to Oxford, I had a pretty decent idea that medicine, something medical is where I wanted to end up. And really, my captivation with biology was always the inherent complexity and obscurity in many cases. My career pivot out of academia and into life sciences investing was in many ways catalyzed, I would say, by COVID-19. I left Oxford, made my way to Boston to take up my fellowship at Harvard Med, February 14th, 2020. And this was, of course, maybe two or three weeks before lockdown, before the pandemic really struck. We figured out fairly quickly that you cannot run a clinical trial from home and you cannot really design a clinical trial or execute preclinical experiments either from home. So it was only a couple of weeks before we were back in the lab, resuming somewhat of a normal life, if you will. Now, my fellowship at Harvard was focused on bringing innovative therapies through preclinical studies and into early stage clinical trials. The therapies, for the most part, targeted refractory types of breast cancer, uh, triple negative, for example. And amidst the M&A craze of 2020, 2021, if you will, the biotech bubble, some might call it, the most amazing thing happened to the main biotech company that I was working with hand in hand. 
they were acquired in a $22 billion all-cash transaction. The company, Immunomedics, was bought by Gilead. And you know what made it even more interesting as an academic working on the project was that everything worked. It, it really created value, helped patients. So I stepped back when this happened. And this was just one example of, of large M&A that we were tangentially involved in. I stepped back and I said, you know, what just happened here? And it was good science, dramatically improving the lives of patients with a terrible disease. And the investors and the founders and management were all rewarded for doing so. And that's what really kindled my interest in moving to the buy side so that I could have a say in identifying early impactful winners like Immutomedics and making sure that they can get across the finish line. Yeah. 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 And and you had, I mean, so that, that science background uh, from, from McGill and Oxford um, it w- was a good one. I mean, drug, drug discovery, focus on drug discovery. I mean, it's a pr- pretty befitting. Did it, did it cross your mind at all? Like even, even back then, like, Hey, I, you know, I, I know something about drug discovery. I might have, uh, have some valuable uh, insight into, into picking winners. No one I had met growing up was an investor. No one in my family was an investor. I had no idea what the term meant. So had I encountered the the concept uh, of supporting companies through their trials and tribulations and really uh, bringing science across the end zone, I think, yes, I think that definitely would have appealed to me, but I didn't really discover it until Towards the end of my PhD, and definitely at Harvard, you know the Boston ecosystem is fantastic for this. So that's yeah. where I was exposed to it. Yeah, look, looking at the timing of your your foray into um, into private equity and and, and venture capital, uh, <clears throat> would you would you do anything differently if you had the power to change the times? So, like, I, I think about the fact that you know, as I said, we're in a, a pretty bearish spot right now. There's not. Is it, and I don't know, is it more ideal for someone who, you know, wants to be uh, uh, involved in, in the investment community to get in on that game when everybody's flush with cash, there's a lot of money, you know, a lot of, a lot of people asking for money, a lot of people giving money away, or, or is it better to kind of, you know, come up in a little bit more of a, a hard knock, uh, I guess, uh, time like we're in now? I think there's two ways to look at it. In my case, I certainly started life science investing when everything was going up by 5 or 10% per day. The mm-hmm. XBI was on a tear and everything, I, I thought every year was as green as 2021, really, or 2020. And it turns out that's not the case. And so I had to really rejig my train of thought and understand how to invest in a different way, really <laughs> focusing on value investing. But I think there's something to be said for coming in now at a time where things are, are a bit bearish. I think that might be an understatement, but um, they're very bearish. And I, I think that your, your challenges are going to be a bit different. You're going to be having to find winners amongst a lot of companies that need support, need help. And so I think picking right now, stock picking in particular, is going to be um, the way forward for at least a little while. But I, I think o- overall, my transition from life science to investing into decisive point in particular, definitely a silver lining because part of our model is built around government funding. Yeah. 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 And we're going to get deep in that. I, we're going to learn a whole bunch about that here, here quite shortly. Um, I, I do want to point out though, by the way, just as a, a complete aside uh, in the last uh, what's today, Tuesday. So in the last seven days, you're the, you're the second McGill guy <laughs> that I've, I've interviewed on the, on the pod. Yep. I uh, last week I was in Boston and I spent some time with 
Dr. James MacArthur, who's the CEO at uh, a company called PepGen startup uh, there in, in Cambridge. Uh, and he's a McGill guy. So there you go. Go McGill. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you joined Decisive Point early this year, Jan- January, was it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what, what led uh, what led you there? What was the, um, I guess, appeal to joining Decisive Point? Yeah. So two things really uh, led me to Decisive Point. First off, as an emerging venture capital firm, they have we have a mission that aligns with my personal ideology. That is that we should be investing in technologies to future-proof our way of life. And this might mean uh, defense and security to some degree, but also, for instance, I'm sure all of your astute listeners would agree that supply chains, medical supply chains, form an integral part of our national security and are therefore something we need to invest in. And so we invest in health and human performance as well. But we also feel that energy and its resiliency is equally important. So we invest in energy innovation Mm -hmm. and quantum and 5G. So broadly, I think the first reason why I joined Decisive Point is because the ideology, the investment mandate really is something that I can believe in and I can get behind. The second reason I joined is because Decisive Point has a really unique model one that I've never really encountered before when I was working in the private equity space. And it's hard to get right, but if you do get it right, it's a win-win for everyone involved. The firm, the investors, portfolio companies and their investors, and also the government, which I think is a pretty unique situation. So the model is basically alongside doing direct equity investments, like a casual, like a normal venture capital firm, We also get government funding alongside that equity investment. And the way that we were very successful in doing that is by actually picking technologies that align with the missions of different agencies across the U.S. government. For example, in life sciences, one that I think everybody can appreciate, a technology that's relevant to government, would be no cold chain storage mRNA vaccine technologies, where we can keep things at room temperature and they can be just fine, shelf-stable for months or years. And there's a clear civilian use case for that as well. So when we execute this model, actually what we're able to do is for every dollar we invest from our equity, we actually take $13 from the US government in non-dilutive capital towards supporting companies for their R&D. Yep, yeah. Yeah, and I, and as I said, I wanna learn more and get some more um you know, get some, get some more examples of, of opportunities like that for our listeners. You know, I mean, the, the, the bulk of our listeners are uh, th- those uh, founders and early stage companies, uh, leaders of early stage companies will be, I'm sure, keenly interested in, uh, in some of those opportunities. Um, before we get into that, though, I want to I want to kind of get your go, go a little bit deeper on your take on what's going on in the in the market right now, what the conditions um look like, what's going on out there, and what it means from uh, a startup's positioning requirements perspective. So what does fundable look like to investors in this market? Sure. So I think the fundable really means that speculative bets, more speculative bets are going to be off the table for now. Um, investors want to see stepwise technology roadmaps, alternative funding sources or complementary funding sources, as I typically call it, mm-hmm. and see those funding strategies integrated into development roadmaps. This might be in the form of, for example, BioBucks through partnerships as a also a demonstration of commercial traction, 
but equally it could be in the form of non-dilutive capital from the government to show federal use cases or federal instruments. And, you know, I know we're going to talk more about it later, but it's always useful to remember the U.S. government actually has set-asides for startups to billions every year to funnel into innovative R&D. So, you know, looking at it kind of broadly, the cost of capital has gone up and will continue to go up for the foreseeable future, meaning that investors need to be more selective than they were two or three years ago. And as a result, management teams also need to be more selective on what programs they're funding, how they're funding it, and to what ends. Um, and, and that's, so is, is that considerably different? You know, you, you said stepwise tech roadmaps, um, you know, funding and development roadmaps. Are, are those new requirements, you know, from, uh, from an investor standpoint, or are they just kind of more intense now than maybe they were a couple of years ago? Yeah, I, I think definitely more intense. I don't think they're anything new. Um, I do think that particularly let's take a look at the public markets, you know, there were companies that were IPOing with, I would say, in my opinion, marginal clinical data, marginal preclinical data, sorry. And that those types of things I think are going to be shifting where the level of evidence required for a company to get further down the pipeline in terms of investment is going to be higher. And really the um, rigor of the science is going to have to increase so that when they do get to the public markets, these, these startups that are only now just forming or now just raising, they really do have effective, but also celebrated science, things that are, are very differentiated um, and w- with a clear impact. Uh, fo- follow up on that. And I, this is a, a big question. I'm interested in your philosophical response to how, how do we how do we end up in, in a place where there is perhaps an, an unhealthy level of um, non-discernment in the investments that investors are making in, in biotech in particular, um, where, you know, bad, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe bad science and, and not so great jockeys. I mean, I've, I've seen it, right. Like I've, I've seen it time and time again in the, in the few years that I've been in this space. Um, how do we get to a point where, where we're just kind of so lackadaisical with the, with the money that we're, we're putting out there and perhaps as a follow into that, how do we, get better at it, even when, you know, e- even when interest rates are low and even when money is is cheap, how do we get better at not just kind of funding a, a bunch of bad science? I struggle to really point fingers at any one particular group or organization or, or even one sector to, to you know, re- really to underscore what, what happened. I, I think it was in a way human nature. I certainly got extremely excited when the initial mRNA vaccine data started to be read out, you know, what was that late 2020? I think that it was an incredible time. It was really unique. We not only had a science-driven challenge for society, but we also had a science-driven solution that was brought to the foreground, multiple science-driven solutions. And so naturally, and then on top of that, I think in 2020, you also had CRISPR awarded Nobel Prize uh, you had a, a, a sequence of events that really excited people that had been in the industry for a long time or newcomers at the time, like myself, that really had never experienced a market cycle, so to speak. Yeah. And this market cycle, if we can call it that, is certainly a very unique one, going down very quickly, coming back up very quickly. And then, of course, as you alluded to, the inflationary pressures are not only very real, but as we can appreciate, probably not as transient as we'd like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it's it's one of those spaces where uh, there's a very fine line between um, funding and encouraging and inciting innovation and being irresponsible with with the you know the money uh, the allocation of, of funds. I, I think you're right, and I, I think that investors, both public and private side, really got swept up in biotechnology. The promise of biotechnology really over the last two years was extremely high. I mean, if you look at the equal weighted ETF for biotechnology, the XBI, that tells you all you need to know over the last 24 to 36 months and the movements there really reaching an incredible peak and then now, you know, a rather low trough. So I think part of this is human emotion and really the fact that we had so much science all the time being, being fed to us from both the media, but also really encouraging clinical trial results demonstrating proof of concept for a technology that we weren't sure it could work. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I'm going to, so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pose a question to you and I, I would like your response uh, to, to speak to perhaps the the founder, the the leader of an emerging biotech company, who's, you know, going to be going to be looking to raise maybe a, a series a, um, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of creative options out there now, you know, I mean, you know, what last year was like, everybody was talking about SPACs and, you know, there's, there's partnership and, and licensing deals that are happening in creative ways that we maybe haven't seen before. There, there's a lot of opportunity to, 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 to get funded in some way or to partner your way through a, a development in some way, but maybe not all of it is a good idea. And I'm sure some of this kind of depends on what your goal is as a company and where you are on the continuum. But um, just generally speaking, can you share with us some advice on, you know, what you see working, perhaps what you see uh, not working well, maybe even investment opportunities that, uh, um, that, that startups are taking that perhaps could be bad money, dangerous, dumb decisions. Just, just some general opinion. I know that's a, it's an unfair, big question to ask you, James. But uh, just some general, general thoughts and opinions on that. Happy to, definitely. So I think why, why don't we take it in that in that order that, that you said? What is working? We're seeing a lot of success for startups, and that's all the way from pre-seed through to Series B, successfully getting grant money and contract money from the government for early stage clinical trial execution and regulatory costs. That is a, especially in invasive therapies or or therapeutics, that is a huge amount of capital that can come from the NIH or other other agencies, Defense Department as well. They fund a lot of medical research. And so that's one thing that we see working very well, because that means that at that important inflection point, maybe you're doing first in human, you don't need to go back and tap your shareholders for capital to get across what is actually a fairly risky inflection point. Yeah. But that's one thing there. In terms of what's not working, I would say almost the inverse in a way. When you are tapping shareholders without positive data, simple as that, that is not going to end well, public or private markets. And particularly, I think in the public investing markets, there's a concept of multiple shots on goal. Mm-hmm. And that, that's great for an investor if you want to, in a way, de-risk your investment because your, your company that you're looking at might have multiple approaches uh, to get to FDA approval and sell the product and help patients. But fundamentally, if you have sequential failures of clinical assets, then you compound negative investor sentiment. And that we, we've seen it across the XBI 
And that can be really quite traumatic to your share price and very difficult to recover from. So tapping shareholders for equity without positive data, I think is something that is tricky to navigate. And this comes back to the roadmap. You really have to have a hedge technology development roadmap where if things do go wrong, you still have other avenues to fund across inflection points. You have to be very strategic and try to have all the foresight you can. Yeah. And Matt, you mentioned something very interesting about dangerous approaches to funding. I think not all grants and contracts and certainly not all equity raises are created equal. When you go out and you, you get funding for a project for your company, it has to, it should align with your commercial trajectory, your ultimate commercial trajectory. Because otherwise, what you're doing is you're taking yourself, your company, and your investors off the path that you said you would, and you're veering in a different direction. It's very different from a pivot, where something doesn't work, you have to get over a, a road bump, you need to get around something, that's fine. But if you're looking for capital just for the sake of the capital, what you might find is that you've actually defocused, you've programmatically defunded your company's main mission, which is also probably going to end poorly. Yeah. 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 That that's interesting, man. I mean, the, as, as you, as you walk through that, you know, the, the risk of multiple shots on goal, the risk of a single shot on goal, the risk of a, of a, of a, um, a, a, a bad shift guised as a pivot. Uh, there's just risk at every turn. I mean, you know, I, I, I could, I could spend half an hour talking with someone who says, you know, well, if you're a one trick pony coming out of academia with, uh, you know, one, one singular piece of science, you're going to have a hard time getting funded if it isn't like really, really good science. And then, you know, to, to hear you say, well, having multiple shots on goal <laughs> could potentially set you up for multiple failures, which isn't going to get you funded. I mean, uh, I don't know, man, is there a balance? Is, is there a happy medium? So, you know, every company is idiosyncratic and every diligence process is going to be unique. Um, that, that's one thing that I'll just flag. But second of all, I think you have to appreciate, especially the earlier stages, how much importance that we place as investors on the people that are running the ship. Mm -hmm. People are, are really at the helm because if you have trust in them and yeah. you need to make a pivot and they call it a pivot, you know, you're going to have complete confidence in them that that is exactly what they're doing, that they're not trying to waste time or resources or capital. And so part of this is a trust exercise yeah. and you build that trust through diligence. And so it, it's something to, to really be wary of as an early stage company is that your investors, it may just be a couple of weeks of diligence now, but later on, it could turn into something much more important where they help you through what could be a challenging macroeconomic climate or challenging fundraise. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. No, it's like our, it's a good point. It's like our, our friend Alan Shaw always says, you bet, bet on the, bet on the jockeys, not the horses, right? Like the, the trust in the people. Um, 
So let's talk about uh, this this differentiator of decisive points around tapping into government uh, grant and, and contract money uh, that often goes, as I said, underutilized, unappreciated, perhaps even uh, even unknown. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I and and this is a, I'm, I'm not even sure where to start because I, I want like the, you know, the the impatient part of me, James, just wants to get right to examples because you gave me a couple that we talked about uh, a while back on the phone, you know, where uh, you were connecting dots that I never would have connected. You know, you were you were connected. You gave me an example of uh, some some Air Force money that's going into you know biopharma development. Like, what what's the connection there? You know what I mean? Like, because there are the obvious ones, James. Like that everybody's aware of, especially coming off of the the COVID experience with Operation Warp Speed and you know all sorts of uh, new new funding being doled out to companies who are working on uh, COVID vaccines therapeutics. So there are these obvious ones, but I, I kind of want to. You know, I want I want you to explain the programs and what you're seeing out there and how Decisive Point helps uh, help helps biopharma's access those funds. But I also kind of want to race to these, you know, uh, not so obvious uh, examples that, that we've talked about. So I'll let you, you I'll let you start where you think it makes sense. Sure, happy to. So we, as Decisive Point, support startups all the time at uh, various stages that are unaware of how much capital the U.S. government puts into early-stage life science R&D. And in particular, I think the Defense Department is probably the most underutilized. Mm -hmm. The Army, the Navy, the Air Force, they all have their own strategic health and life science priorities, but so does the Defense Health Agency, the Defense Innovation Unit, the Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program. I could go on for days. DARPA, NASA has a health program, of course. At the end of the day, health plays a role in every government agency, stateside, abroad, also in space. And so each of them will have some type of mechanism by which they can fund early stage innovation, so long as that innovation aligns ultimately with the mandate of the agency in one way or another. Part of this is about framing, as I can come on and talk about a bit more. But really, that's that's the, the key takeaway. Now... Most of your listeners will know that the largest source of non-diluted capital uh, grant money from the U.S. government for health is coming from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. But by stepping back as a founder and viewing your technology and viewing your mission as relevant to society and, and to government as well and the people that are governed by government, you can unlock additional funding, really. And the best part is, just before we, we, we come on to the examples, is the best part is most of these mechanisms for funding, albeit preclinical or clinical studies, do not have a nine-month rigorous peer review process with an inverse scale. And one is, you've done amazing, you know, mm -hmm. something I always um, thought was a bit odd about the NIH. But, you know, it, it's easy to focus on, on, the, or on diluted capital raises, but really by tapping into these alternative sources, I think you can help get your technology or solution across the line. So in terms of the examples that we spoke about, I think probably the one that most people are aware of is that Moderna was, for example, funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, in 2012 or 2013. I think that was for the tune of 10 or $20 million. DARPA is the same organization that famously invented the internet, ARPANET at the time, and also GPS and, and a few other notable and, and useful inventions for society. 
at the time, you know, DARPA was no, not funding Moderna for a COVID-19 vaccine, right? This is again, back in 2012. But eventually, 10 years later, roughly eight, 10 years later, the technology that they did support was able to build into what platform COVID-19 vaccine. So that's one. There's Moderna in there. Second of all, very, very close to my heart, just because my work at Harvard was Immunomedics. Immunomedics actually secured 47 small business innovation grants from the U.S. government over the course of about 20 or 30 years. 47. That am- 47. Yeah. Wow. And that amounted to tens of millions of dollars of non-diluted capital that was injected into what was essentially a university spin out at the time. And that, that seemed to end quite well, I think. Um, another company that, that I, you alluded to, which is really exciting to me, uh, is Neurovation in New York. They have a quantitative PTSD pet tracer diagnostic and accompanying small molecule therapeutic that they're developing. They've been funded to the tune of two or three million dollars now by the Air Force. Really, Nervation is doing early stage stuff, so it's too early to tell whether or not it's going to work. But fundamentally, I think the fact that the Air Force is coming in and doing early stage biopharma non-dilutive investments like this is really exciting because it opens up the door to other agencies in the government putting their capital to work for biopharma as well. Right. Um, and, and they're not, they're not the only company actually funded by the Air Force, um, Aura, the Aura Ring, famously for, uh, for recording biometrics non-invasively, they've had a number of contractual partnerships with the Air Force and supported development, uh, across, uh, the armed forces. That type of contract that I think Aura is involved in is, um, a non-dilutive milestone-based R&D project. So that's one where you sit down with the government and you actually say, if you give me X amount of money, I will do milestones A, B, C, and D. So it's a bit more structured in a way than an NIH grant, for example, where you get the payment up front. Right. Uh, let's talk about, you You alluded when you when you kind of first started uh, talking about these these programs and the mission alignment, you know, you alluded to I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe you didn't allude to it. Maybe I was maybe I was wanting to hear that there's some creative license, some wiggle room, if you will. So again, sort of philosophically, uh, I, I want to dig into, you know, just just how much wiggle room or creative license there might be. Realistically, you know, if I'm the founder of a of a biopharma company and I and I can draw a connection between perhaps my you know, the, the IP that I have in a specific therapeutic area or a, with a specific indication, if I can draw a line between that and, I don't know, something at the Navy, something at, uh, you know, at, at, at DARPA, um, what, what's, what's worth pursuing versus like, boy, that's too, too big a stretch. Do you know what I mean? So, like, and, and how absolutely. is that, and how is that, uh, how, how is that ultimately determined generally like who's making that determination like yeah you know what i can i can see that i can see a connection or this is something that perhaps might be worth pursuing so uh, i think it is definitely something where you have a bit of creative license to frame up your technology your solution your therapeutic um really in a light that reflects the agency's interest and uh, you know you asked a couple of questions there so first off definitely you have creative license 
Second of all, that's kind of the trick to it is understanding what the priorities are of these different agencies. I don't think that NASA is very interested in CAR T therapies unless it's you know from left field, but I do think that other government agencies definitely might have a vested interest there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when it comes to how do you determine whether or not your technology can be framed up according to the different agency mandates, I think that one of the nice things about the US government is you can approach them. They have program managers that are actually responsible for allocating these budgets. And those program managers, as long as you're a certain number of days or weeks away from the deadline, you can schedule a meeting with, as you would a Zoom call, half an hour, a technology exchange meeting. And you can chat to them about your piece of technology to understand, is it something that would be responsive to the solicitation? Is it fundable by the government for this particular program? And oftentimes what you have happen is you have these program managers that will give you yes or no, but if it's a no, they can point you in other directions too. Perhaps it is something that truly must go through the NIH program. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, I think what you'll find is that good science, peer-reviewed science, and really innovative technologies can find a way into different aspects of the government, different agencies, including and especially the Defense Department. Yeah. Um, let me let me just back up real quick, make sure I understood that correctly. The program manager that you referenced, these program managers are uh, specific to uh, specific agencies? So each agency, each institute, even each department within there will have a set number of program managers. So for example, mm-hmm. you might have a program manager who specializes in neural probes that you can contact and discuss whether or not your invasive neural probe project is suitable for that program funding. Okay. Um, it occurs to me that if, you know, I, I always, uh, you know, I, a lot of times I like draw uh, parallels to uh, something going on in, in, in my life. And as, as, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about the fact that I have a 17 year old son who is, uh, you know, he's, he's preparing for life after high school. And he and several of his friends could very well make a full-time job of of scholarship applications, right? Like this becomes, uh, you know, it becomes a, a an obsession and a very time-consuming one. So I'm, I'm kind of drawing this parallel. Like if I'm a founder and I'm listening to, to James Coates telling me like, hey, you know, there's a whole bunch of opportunity um, for, for, for federal funding, government funding, agency funding. Um, I'm going, wow, I, I'm going to need to dedicate a whole lot of time to research um, and, and alignment. And then, you know, if there are opportunities, um, time and effort into um, pursuing, right? Uh, writing the applications and, and, and pursuing. So, Give us some thoughts around that. I mean, obviously, you know, Decisive Point would like to help. So without making it too big a a commercial for for Decisive Point, give us some thoughts around sort of the execution level. Uh, Should this be a path that that seems to make sense for a company? What what is it going to take to execute? Does it take a, you know, does it take some talent, internal talent, a full-time employee who is is out there, you know, writing grants and, and making appeals? Uh, is it outsourcing? You know, what 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 uh what sort of some best practices around? pursuing these opportunities? So I think there's two approaches that that we can really examine in detail. One is this bottom-up approach where we are applying for grants and contracts with companies in order to help them secure non-dilutive capital. And in that case, it really helps to have peer-reviewed publications that you can draw from to actually frame up 
your grant application or your contract proposal and milestone plan. Does it take a full-time employee? Probably not. The more resources that you have available, I think the better. In some cases, the really innovative technologies I find, for example, I mentioned neural probes earlier, that's going to take a bit more effort to really plan out the statement of work. It's a bit more complicated. I think the value proposition might be a bit less straightforward for the government to fully understand. So you have to be a bit more careful and tidy about how you frame that up. But there's a parallel approach, too, that we haven't spoken about, and it's a top-down approach. Simply put, the U.S. government doesn't know, can't fund what it isn't aware of. So in addition to actually putting out solicitations for grants and contracts, they have another process separate called requests for information. Those are opportunities where you can submit a couple hundred words on your technology, and you'll never hear back, more than likely. But occasionally, what happens is, if you do enough of those over a long enough period of time, and you're convincing in your explanation of what your technology does, and how it relates to human health or a particular agency, what you'll find is maybe a year later that there's actually a brand new solicitation that's opened up asking for applications for that particular theme and that particular topic. Hmm. So that's an example of something we do in parallel is we're constantly working with the United States government to open new opportunities for innovative technologies that might not really fit somewhere else uh, as in a standard grant or contract. Yeah. Well, who do you work with uh, on a project like that? Like you say, you, you, you're working on uh, on this with the, with the U.S. government. Is it a multi-agency approach that so you're working with multiple agencies or... Yeah, it's always going to be a multi-agency approach. I mean, we will typically contact NIH program officers to see how they feel, take their temperature around health innovation. But generally speaking, we also try to be a bit more nuanced. And for example, with the PTSD example in the Air Force, the Air Force have long had a vested interest in helping fighter jet pilots with their PTSD. And so as a result, we try to take a similarly creative approach. And it does take some time to actually map out the federal landscape of stakeholders and figure out the best way to approach them. But once you're able to get your foot in the door, like I said, for one of these technology exchange meetings, then what you have is you actually have a contact at a very specific office who's been tasked with almost overseeing a select amount of technology and innovation that you can reach out to time and time again with questions or with information on your development as you go. Yeah. Um, I, I want to make sure I have this straight. I'm, I'm assuming there is. So, I mean, gov- government websites, uh, as, as you know, are uh, a labyrinth. I mean, they're <laughs> they're difficult to navigate. Um, not very congruous. Uh, I'm assuming there is not uh, some semblance of a clearinghouse of uh, of of information on these opportunities. Something even remotely comprehensive, like if you work in X area. You might want to go look at, at this agency. Um, would that be a correct assumption? So really, there is a clearinghouse. I like the analogy. It's a little messy, but grants.gov, very simply put, is the URL. And everything is published and put out there for open competition. The trick, though, and this is where it gets a little complicated, is certain divisions of the U.S. government, certain institutes within agencies, will only put out open solicitations that can accept applications for maybe 14 or 15 days at certain times. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, is if you don't have all of your ducks in a row, your government registrations, 
your proposal, all the references, all the end noting, everything done and tidy and tucked away, it's probably going to be the case that you're going to miss the application window. And there really are just no exceptions to that. So one thing that we try to do is we use our proprietary databases to predict when the next solicitations will come open so that we can have companies that we work with prepared long before that two-week window opens. Uh-huh. Very cool. Yeah. Have you ever um, done or, or considered uh, executing some sort of a analysis of just how much uh, funding could potentially be available um, to the, the, the biotech industry uh, specifically um, just to kind of, I'm just curious, like, you know, how much, how much money is potentially being uh, overlooked or left on the table uh, from, from federal sources, uh, any, any ballpark, or is that something you, you, you might ever try to uh, try to compute? So I, I think that's something that we're in the middle of computing right now. That's a, that's a great question, Matt. One thing I can tell you is since we've started this model of getting government support for companies that we really believe in and make investments in, we've helped 110 companies, startups, get over 350 million US dollars from across the different agencies. So what, what I think that should tell you, and that, that's just us, you know, yeah. I think that there is a lot of capital out there. I think that it would probably shock a lot of people, the amount of non-dilutive spend and, you know, another statistic just uh, popped into my head is the U.S. Army have prostate cancer research programs that have nearly 100% success rates for funding just because of the people that apply or the lack thereof mm-hmm. and really the disciplined focus being a particular niche of prostate cancer. So it's partly about knowing how to frame up your technology, knowing that the opportunities are out there, then also knowing when to look and where to look. Yeah. Yeah. Another great example that, you know, you, you wouldn't just, you know, come up with on your own. Well, naturally the army would be interested in prostate cancer programs. Are you, um, so decisive point is a, is a U.S. company and we've, we've talked a lot about U.S. dollars and, and U.S. Uh, government agencies. Are you doing any international work or is there similar opportunities up in, uh, in, in, in Canada, for instance, your, your homeland, uh, any, any international, um, uh, efforts going on? Yeah, so it's something that we're growing into. You know, we're spending some time in the UK setting up connections there. Canada, of course, our you know closest neighbor and ally, but um, it's going to take some time. I think that particularly when we look at the defense, classical defense technologies, those get very complicated to import export. Biopharma, in some ways, is much easier, um, but it's going to take some time to set up those non-dilutive strategies across the different governmental frameworks. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to share uh, any any news on programming um, going on at Decisive Point. Like for instance, one of the things I I, I saw uh, recently was I read a little bit about your accelerator program with the National Security Innovation Network, uh, the Air Force Research Laboratory, and New Lab. I didn't know if that was perhaps something uh, exciting or in 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 uh, in process at this Decisive Point that you wanted to share about, or any other you know new I guess initiatives or programs that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, happy to. So um, yeah, the Propelled program is a really interesting one. So Decisive Points and New Lab, in cooperation with the National Security Innovation Network and the Air Force Research Laboratory (AFRL). For a couple of years now, we've all gotten together and run this accelerator program for early stage companies called Propel. Mm-hmm. 
the objective of Propel is really to enable development of next generation technologies for government, defense, space, you name it. You can kind of see the our, our defense roots are very real and, and, and we're growing it and branching out. But right. for now, we, we still do a lot of work in the defense space. And really, Ensign Propel, our role in that accelerator program is to identify key stakeholders from across the U.S. government and then interface them with startup founders that have really cool technologies. And the stakeholders we look for are ones that can actually action procurement and acquisitions so that they can, in a way, they can move the capital, they can buy products, services, you name it. And we found that to be really fruitful for these startups, these companies that are able to talk to, really speak with people that can do decision-making high up in government. Yeah. Yeah, that's that that's super cool. Um where can where can well, you know, before I get to that, uh another thing I wanted to ask you about was was uh founders and funders. Um which was interesting, Matt. So I saw that on your uh I think on your LinkedIn profile that you're a director with founders and funders. And uh I think I, I looked into it a little bit. There have been a number of, I guess, uh founders and funders sort of branded uh efforts out there over the over the past few years. Um, but it seemed like it was kind of part and parcel with uh, the conversation we're having here. So I want, wondered if that was something you wanted to share a little bit about what you're, what kind of work you're doing there. Yeah, happy to. So Founders and Funders is a nonprofit set up in the UK, but we're starting to branch a bit into the, the Boston ecosystem. The way that we we typically explain it is that it's a community and digital event series, and the the objective is to bring early stage scientists and entrepreneurs in contact with experts from across the ecosystem, whether that be life sciences, biotech, med tech, life sciences, investing, you name it. And so I'm tangentially involved now, uh, no longer with the the day-to-day since I started my current role at Decisive Point. But really, the point of Founders and Funders is to bring people, like, for example, Peter Kolchinsky from RA Capital, we brought him on board to speak about drug pricing. And then we built out a whole drug pricing vertical. So people who are passionate about topics, we bring them on, we speak to them about things that they're interested in. And then for about half an hour, we open up Q&A discussion to our attendees. And what we found is some really remarkable discussions have ensued, collaborations have been set up, and we're now doing a lot of work alongside McKinsey, Bain, emerging venture capital firms, Harvard Business School, you name it. Um, really focusing partly on drug pricing, but also mental health, food security, and CRISPR is in there as well, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. Good deal. Uh, decisive point is how old? How long has the company been around? So I think it was started operating 2018, 2019. So I'd say about three to four years old. Okay. Yeah. So relatively new company. Uh, you've got, uh, I think I've seen like as far as uh, partners, directors, principals, what, a, a dozen maybe folks uh, on board? How, how many employees? I think we just got our 11th employee in total. So mm-hmm. we just crossed that threshold 11 to 49. Yeah. So I, I was, I was close. Um, what, what does growth look like from, from here? Uh, what, what's next on the company's horizon? Yeah. So I think, you know, bear, bearing in mind how our strategy, our investment model is closely intertwined with government spending. And we're going through a period of challenging macroeconomic, I don't want to say turmoil, but uh, it's a challenging macroeconomic in- environment. So we actually expect that government spending will pick back up in about a year, year and a half, two years. And that's going to be quite beneficial for us, I think, based on our model. And so what we're looking at doing is we're looking at growing and expanding over the next few months 
to about a year and then really raising another venture fund and deploying that when we see the time is right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, good. Uh, we're running short on time here, James. Was there anything, uh, any concluding thoughts, anything that I, I glossed over, didn't ask you that you think is, is relevant to the story? I mean, I got to tell you, I think uh, just the awareness, um, the, um, yeah, awareness, uh, access to resources to help our, our listeners look into these opportunities, uh, learn more from Decisive Point. I think it's extremely valuable. It's super timely. Uh, in, in, in the in the time that we're in right now. So I think it's been super valuable. But again, I, w- I want to make sure that I, uh, I'm i not giving you a, a short, short shrift on any uh, any specific topics you wanted to tackle. No, absolutely. Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I think the only thing that I would say really, really and it's something I, I, I tried to mention a couple of times now, is that really framing up your technology and use case, or maybe even your second use case further out in time, or third or fourth, is really critical for getting non-dilutive capital, whether that be from the government or elsewhere. And so that's the only thing that I would really stress upon founders is to think about, think outside the box about how their technology can be applied. I think sometimes doing that requires, and again, I mean, I'm, I you know d- don't mean to, uh, I certainly don't want to make a, a shameless plug for for decisive point, um, uh, you know, on, on your behalf, James. But doing that, I, I think it, it does often require. Uh, sort of a third-party perspective, you know, a, a fresh, a fresh set of eyes, because we tend to get so married to the day-to-day. We get so married to what we're doing within the confines of of the place we've always done it, right? Just in general. Um, so, where you know, if if uh, a, a new lens is is deemed uh, required to to analyze some of these opportunities, where can where can folks learn more about uh, you and Decisive Point and the work that you guys are doing? Yeah, absolutely. Please do reach out, whether that be on LinkedIn or decisivepoint.com. And I think we have a very clear approach where if we can't help you, we know someone else, another organization in the ecosystem that can. We're very well aware and you know, we've delineated kind of who we can and cannot help, what types of companies we can and cannot help. But our, our network is pretty expansive, both on the East Coast, but also beyond. So I would say reach out. Always happy to have a chat. You can email me, james at decisivepoint.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, James, thank you. Thanks for uh, subjecting yourself to some of my random and rambling questions. I think it was, as I said, very beneficial. I appreciate having you on. And, uh, you know, best of luck to, to you and the Decisive Point team moving forward. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. So that's Decisive Point Principal James Thomas Coates. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with our friends at Cytiva. Check Cytiva out at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check us out and subscribe to my newsletter at bioprocessonline.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.